I, I remember when I went to college and I went to a school in Abilene, Texas uh, called Hardin-Simmons University. And I remember when I got there um, that the first week I was there, uh, I went down to the basement of the dorm I was living in. And I don't know how many of you guys went to university, went to school, but when I got there, I went down to the basement. And in the basement were, were the washers and, and dryers where you clean your clothes. And I remember watching all these dudes, these new college freshman guys, try to figure out how to use a washer. It was quite humorous, to say the least. They would try to put the clothes in there, and of course we had pink clothes coming out of the washer because they would just throw them all in there. Uh, they didn't know how to turn the buttons on. They didn't know, was it hot? Was it cold? Now, thankfully, my mom had raised me. Um, yeah, some of you guys are aware of Promise Keepers. I think my mom invented Promise Keepers, um, where it's like men, we step up and we work, right? In, in the home, we do whatever's necessary. So I learned some of those things. And then I remember watching my, my uh, friends, like when it came time to cook, you know, and I know most of us couldn't afford maybe a lot in college trying to get through, but I mean, these guys, they couldn't even boil water, you know, they couldn't even like do ramen uh, noodles. And so they learned pretty quick though, and that got us through. Uh, but I was thinking about that because we, we know how important our moms are, but sometimes we forget until they're not there, right? Uh, the first time that those guys got sick, and they're laying in there moaning and groaning, and where's my mommy? You know, these are like 18 and 19-year-old boys, right? And their mom's not there, and they're feeling it, right? Again, I know maybe some of you that wasn't your experience, but moms have a really significant role, but sometimes we can forget how important they are. And I was thinking about the, the conversation today uh, from Philippians as we continue our study through the book of Philippians, and I was reminded that it's similar in some ways to this idea of unity, uh, Paul's going to address unity today, and unity is really, really, really important for the church, for believers, uh, for Christians. It's, it's, it's a really important aspect of how we live out the gospel, and yet we don't always think it's important until we don't have it. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, unity is real, really significant, and it's important, and it's vital, uh, but we don't always see it that way until we're disunified, and then when there's not any peace and relationally there's struggle, and I know you guys don't ever have any of that in your home, right? But when it's not there, it's not good. And I, and I was thinking about how that today as we think about this issue of unity, um, one of the greatest gifts you could give your mom for Mother's Day is, is like a peaceful home, right? Uh, you know, maybe you guys have heard uh, that phrase that if mama's not happy, no, nobody's happy. Um, maybe one of the ways we could help make mama's happy is to be unified in our home, right? To pursue peace with one another, to pursue reconciliation, and, and, uh, and to, be, to pursue unity in our home. But that's a hard thing, and, and unity is elusive. It's difficult. And so I want us to dig into a text today that I think reminds us of the significance of unity as Paul continues his progression through this book of Philippians. Again, if you haven't been with us before, um, we're just teaching through verse by verse this book of Philippians, which is a profound book in the New Testament. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul written to Christian believers uh, at Philippi, to the church that was there. Uh, we talked first week about some of the folks who were originally uh, a part of that church, very interesting group of people that that comprised it. But we know this, that Paul is in a jail cell, uh, under house arrest, chained to a soldier, 
24-7, and he's writing this letter, and he is speaking life and encouragement into these believers at Philippi, okay? And so we've worked through chapter 1, and today we'll start chapter 2. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to pull it out. Uh, if you don't, the words are actually be on the screen here. We're reading from the HCSB. But I want us to read this, just first four verses together, and then we're going to come back and read the other half of that, okay? Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, this is a heavy, um, challenging uh, instruction from Paul here because he's saying that we should pursue unity, oneness, and he's giving us a real key to how we actually experience that unity, that unified purpose and that unified uh, goal. And so, I think this is actually attached to what Paul said in verse 27 in chapter 1. So I think it's important for me just to review quickly what Harley said last week, which is probably the theme verse from the book of Philippians, which is this verse. It says um, that we should live a life worthy of the gospel we have received. I don't know about you guys. When I read that, when I hear that live a life worthy of the gospel you've received, um, I'm like, that sounds like a really high bar. And at the same time, it can almost be a little bit confusing because it almost sounds like Paul is saying we have to earn our salvation, that we have to live in such a way as to actually achieve salvation. But I want to make sure that we're crystal clear so that we don't get confused because in our life group, even this week, we talked a little bit about that. He's not saying that you have to live in order a worthy enough life in order to receive your salvation. He's saying because you have received your salvation, live in response to that. Live in response to the gift of, our, of eternal life, redemption, forgiveness of our sins. Live in light of that. And when we live in light of that, we will not look like everyone else because that is profound what God has done for us. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want you to understand something before we really dive into this text itself. And that is, is that Paul is appealing to the gospel, right? He's appealing, he's appealing to the gospel. And anytime we as Christians, uh, we want to grow and we want to help others grow, we need to look at the gospel and say, how does the gospel speak into this issue? Not how does the law or the rules uh, change me, but how does the gospel speak into this? And why this is so significant, because I realize some of you are like, I don't even know what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that we could not save ourselves, that we were sinners that we were broken, that we were rebellious, and that God stepped into human history in the person of Jesus, and that he took uh, on our sin. He lived a perfect life. He took on our sin, lived a sinless life. He suffered on a cross to now make a way for us to be forgiven and to be with God forever. It's phenomenal what he's done for us. And, and the thing is, is that maybe you've been in church a long time. Maybe you haven't. I don't know your story. But I know this, is that for some reason, we've tended to think that the gospel is something that is only for those who don't know Jesus. As in those who've yet to put their trust in Jesus. But I want to remind you this morning that the gospel is not just for salvation. It's also for maturity. It's how we grow up into Christ-likeness. And the more we believe the gospel, the more mature we will become. Are you with me? Now, this is important because the gospel does 
comfort those who are afflicted, but it also afflicts the comfortable. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The gospel does comfort the afflicted, but it also afflicts the comfortable. Let me explain what I mean. When we hear the gospel, here's the good news. We were dead and Christ made us alive. We were broken. We were messed up. We were helpless and hopeless. We were done. We deserve death. We, ter- we deserve eternal separation. We deserve God's wrath. That's what the scripture teaches us because we were sinners. And in a sense, what we are reminded of in the gospel is that we have been given life because of God's great mercy and grace towards us. That's, that's comforting, isn't it? It's comforting to know that my greatest need has been met in the person of Jesus. That my greatest desires, my greatest longings, my greatest hopes, the things that I need more than anything else have been provided in Christ. So in the midst of hardships, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of seasons where things seem like they're completely out of whack, we can find comfort in Christ and in the redemptive work of Christ in the gospel. The good news, right? But at the same time, here's the deal. Once we have accepted Christ and once we have experienced some of that comfort that Paul's even going to address here in a second, we're reminded that God calls us to change. He calls us to grow. Maybe you've heard it this way. God loves us enough that he will come to us and meet us right where we are. He loves us right where we are today. But he also loves us enough to not leave us where we are today. You know what I'm talking about? If you've been around church and around community with other Christians and you've been around good Bible teaching, you, every week I feel a tension that God is saying, Nick, you need to trust me more. You need to grow in the grace that I've given you. You need to grow in the gospel. You need to grow in seeing the bigger reality of your life, that it's not all about you. That's hard. So I feel a little bit like, God, you're picking on me. You ever felt like you've been picked on? But that's a good thing because God loves us enough not to just leave us alone in our sin. He knows that freedom and joy and all the benefits that come from him, we experience those as we take steps of faith and trust in him. As we obey him, there are blessings in that. So the gospel does comfort the afflicted, but it also afflicts us when we get stagnant, stale, indifferent to God. God will use his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to call us out. And that's a good thing, right? We should want that. You're like, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, we should want that because we want to grow and experience all that God has for us. And one of the ways that it does this is that the gospel calls us away from individualism into community with other believers. The gospel calls us away from individualism into community with other believers. Now, we live in a very individualistic culture. What do I mean by that? I mean that we tend to say, I got this. I don't need anybody's help. Let me do my thing, right? We, we, uh, we want to be in isolation. We want to insulate ourselves a lot of times. We don't want people to know who we really are. We don't want people to know our struggles, our pain, our issues. And let's be honest, we don't want to deal with anybody else's baggage. We're like, just let me do my thing. Leave me alone. I'm going to walk and, and, and I'm going to love God and I'm going to wait for my heaven. But, you know, don't, you don't need to know my junk and I don't need to know yours. And the truth is, is behind every closed doors, every closed set, set of doors in our, in our community, there are issues. There are struggles. There's difficulties. But we tend to, to say, I got this. We want to walk independently of Christian community. But the gospel says, listen, catch this. The gospel says we can let our guard down and we can actually pursue community with one another. 
In fact, we need community with one another if we're going to grow and experience all that God has for us. And this is difficult for our, our American Christian mindset sometimes to, to deal with. In that we, listen, catch this, we need to help one another and we need others to help us if we're going to grow up in the gospel, if we're going to grow to be more like Jesus. Because that's the goal. He's our goal. We need community. We need help. And here's the thing that's so, so important and so significant to remember. I don't have to impress others. I don't have to prove myself to others. I don't have to, to gain others. Um, I guess just even, I don't, I don't have to, to, to look at them as if they are how I'm accepted in God. I don't find my worth, my identity, my value in other people. And so therefore I can be in genuine community because I'm not trying to just impress people. So I don't, I don't have to hide my junk because the truth is we all have it. And so we want to be in community with, with, with one another. And the gospel calls us into that. In fact, the gospel not only calls us into community, it calls us into unified community. When you hear the word community, what do you hear in the end of that? Community, right? Common unity. That we're, we're unified. And that's what should happen. Because God is a relational God and he calls us into relationship with him. He calls us into relationship with one another. Again, a lot more could be said there, but I want to leave that alone. Know, know this. Paul is calling us to live our lives worthy of the gospel we have received. And here's what he says in verse 120, or 27 uh, in chapter 1. I want to re- re- review this. He says, just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am abs- absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in what? One spirit, one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about unity, isn't he? He's talking about unity in fighting off the forces that are trying to change the gospel, that are trying to attack the gospel, that are trying to keep Paul silent and the other believers silent about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But also he's calling the church to be unified together, to be community together, to be one together. And here's what we know to be true. That the more you and I grow in the gospel, the more we grow in understanding it and putting our trust in Jesus instead of ourselves to save ourselves. The more we do that, the more we are going to move towards community. In fact, we would say that unity, unified community, is a good indicator of are you a mature believer? Paul says this in Ephesians 4. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that we should all grow up into the unity of the faith under the head of Christ. So he's telling us that unity is a sign of true maturity. Have you ever thought of it that way? Anybody ever thought about that? So what does unity actually look like? Well, we're just going to work through this, these words of Paul here because I think he gives us a great picture. First, notice what he says. I read this already, but I'm going to read it again. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... So he gives us four things there that indicate uh, an experience that these believers have had. Because actually, if you were to read this the way it should read, um, it's not the word if, it's actually the word since or because. So he says, since you have what? Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship with the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy. Since those things, Paul is appealing to the gospel. He's saying you've, you've had a common salvation. The, one of the foundations for us to have community with other believers, unified community with other believers, 
is that we go back and we realize that at the foot of the cross, you guys have heard this, right? At the foot of the cross, it's level. We all come with the same need for salvation. We need Jesus Christ to save us. And so he's saying to these believers, you guys have experienced these things because of Christ. And that is the foundation for, for Christian unity, is to remember. And those four things, just, just to really quickly to, to, to speak those out. He says we, need, we have courage through Christ. We have courage to face our everyday struggles and trials. We have that in Christ. He says encouragement in Christ, which is to speak courage. Christ has spoken courage into our souls. He's reminded us that he is bigger than whatever we're facing. We have a common unity in that. He has overcome our greatest enemy. In fact, he's defeated our greatest enemy, right? Death. And so we have courage through Christ. We also have love in Christ. Notice he says, if you have any consolation of love in the midst of hardship, you never have to question, does God love me? Do we question God, do you love me? Absolutely, we do. But you don't have to. Because in Christ, we know that when he died on the cross, he made a declaration once and for all that, that, we, are, that we are loved by God. Even as a pastor, <laughs> there are moments where I really struggle to believe that. Can I be honest with you? There are moments where I don't actually believe that God loves me or that his love for me is actually sufficient. So I look for other things to fill that gap, to fill that void. And in those moments, I got to come back and remind myself, Jesus, you love me, you died for me, and that's enough. So he says that one of the ways that we find this unity, common ground in this salvation is, is we know we're loved by Christ. We also have the presence of Christ. Now this is way bigger than we could talk about today, but aren't you glad that when Jesus left the earth, he sent the Holy Spirit? Now maybe you haven't really thought about that because I think functionally a lot of Christians, we believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Son, but we rarely like talk about the Holy Spirit, which I think is offensive to God, by the way. <laughs> Because he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is with us. And Jesus even said that when he left, you want me to leave so I can send my spirit to be with you. You know why? Because in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty, just like these people in the early church were dealing with, you know what you need in in those sufferings? Just like Paul's in prison, you know what you need? You don't need somebody to explain your suffering away. You need the presence of a real God who's with you in it. You need what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego needed in the fiery furnace, don't you? You need a spirit of God. You need the presence of the living God to to show you that he is with you, that he is for you. You need need a wisdom and a comfort and awareness that God is with you. And we have that in Christ. He says if you have any fellowship with the spirit, if you're a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit is with you. It's a good thing. And he says also mercy. Tenderness and compassion is one way it says, but this idea of mercy... Um, I'm so grateful God's shown me mercy. I do not deserve my salvation, and there are things that I do deserve that he has withheld from me. That is mercy from God. And so really, really thankful today. And in Christ, we can have unity as we remember and reflect on those realities, the courage, the love, the presence, and the mercy of Christ. But the gospel benefits that we've received, they unify us. Now notice what Paul says from that. He says, make my joy complete. Now, mamas and daddies in the room, how many of you get excited when your kids actually obey you? Yes? Hey, kids in the room, if you want to bless your mom on Mother's Day, do what she asks you to do, right? <laughs> obey her. Paul says this, he says, because he, he loves these people in Philippians, Philippi, he loves them so much, he says, make my joy complete. He's just saying the obvious, that when you care about someone that you're leading and that you're loving and you're, you're investing in, just like a father with his children, when they do the right thing, You celebrate, right? 
There's times in my, my family right now, um, my uh, child, we, our youngest child, he's two, we're going through potty training for the sixth time, okay? You think we'd be experts at this by now. We're not. We're still struggling through it. And let's just say this, we're not always hitting the toilet. Um, we're trying. We're getting closer. But there are moments when he actually does get to the toilet and he actually does potty in the right place. And I go crazy. And I celebrate. And I'm running around like crazy man. Woo! Way to go. You did it. You know? Some of you guys are looking at me like I don't... What's wrong with y'all? Seriously. My, jo- my, I am, my heart is happy when he makes it in the toilet. Right? I don't have to clean that up. That's great. When we do the right thing and we obey God, it brings joy to our Father's heart. It also, for me, when I look at this congregation and I see people being faithful to their marriage in spite of the difficulties that they're facing, when I see people using God's money that he's given them for things that really matter for eternity, it makes my heart happy. And I can resonate with what Paul's saying when he says, make my joy complete in that I want you to Live out the gospel. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And one of the ways that we do that is when we are unified. Um, i got to move on. So much we could say there. He goes on to give us a few other things in verse 2 that reveal what true unity looks like in the church. He says that we would have a common attitude, a common thinking. So he says there uh, in verse 2, he says, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. Did you guys know that when you become a Christian, you become a Christ follower, we have a new way of thinking. In fact, one of uh, the, the dads up here read a verse over their child. Do not conf- be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As a Christ follower, we don't see the world through the same lens as we did prior to knowing Jesus. We've been changed. And our thinking has been changed. Our attitude has been changed. Now, again, we can naturally drift. I can naturally drift back to old ways of thinking. But in Christ, we have a new way of seeing life. We have a new lens. We see an eternal perspective. We understand the momentary troubles uh, around us, that they're, they're fleeting, they're passing, right? We understand what really matters in the whole scope of eternity. So he says you should have the same mindset. You should have the same way of thinking about one another and about God. He also says that we should have common passion. He says two different, this two different ways. I think these both fall into the same camp. And then he says um, sharing the same feelings or having the same love. You know what God has called us to? One of the other parents got up here and read one of the scriptures from Matthew. And it's one of the the most significant verses uh, from Jesus' teaching when he was asked, what's the greatest thing you can do with your life, right? What's the greatest commandment? To love God and to love people. We have common passions. We have common passions. Those passions ultimately are for God and for people, right? We would love one another. We would love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, like Jesus said even as he was quoting from the Old Testament. And so there's a unity in our love, in our passion. And there's also a common purpose. A common purpose. Last thing he says there is he says, focusing on one goal. And what has Paul been telling them to do? He's been telling them to live a life worthy of the gospel, take that gospel to the nations. Take that gospel to their their friends. Take that gospel all over the place. They have a purpose. They have a goal. You guys have heard me say this before. If you've been here at Point, if you're new, you haven't. But just know this. Listen, if we didn't have a purpose or a point, if we didn't have a mission, uh, then God would just take us home whenever we accepted him into our lives, when we put our trust in him. He'd just say, you put your trust in Christ, go to heaven. But he's left us here for a reason. 
And that's because there are a lot of people on this planet who've yet to receive him, who've yet to experience all the things we just talked about, the the encouragement in Christ, the, the love of Christ, the presence of Christ, the mercy of Christ. They've not received those things, and we get to participate in helping them receive those things. And so we have a common purpose. Now, I have to say a word about this because growing up in church, as a kid in church, I look around and I remember how at times I saw a lot of dysfunction and disunity in the church. I saw a lot of times the church, like people backbiting, people gossiping about one another, slamming one another, people doing things underhandedly. You know why they do that stuff? Because one, they've lost sight of the gospel, and two, they've lost sight of the gospel mission. When we lose sight of the gospel, we start thinking that we are better than other people, which is going to lead us to this, these two barriers to the, to the unity that God wants us to have, but also losing sight of the gospel mission. And so now it becomes more about the side things instead of the most important things, the main things. Are you with me? Some of you grew up in the church and you've been wounded by the church, and the reason you were wounded is because that church lost sight of the mission. Our mission is to, to help people know Jesus and to, to follow Jesus, right? That's what Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. And when we lose sight of that, we become disunified and we wound people in the process. There's two things that really break down unity that Paul addresses here. He says this, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Uh, Maybe your translation of scripture says selfish ambition. Notice he doesn't say that it's bad to have ambition. He doesn't say do, do nothing out of ambition. He says do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's why I like this word rivalry. Because did you know that it's possible for Christians, for believers, to actually look at other Christians as competitors? Like we are competing for acceptance. We're competing for acknowledgement of other people. We're competing for God's love and grace. We're competing. And I want you to know that in Christ we aren't competitors. In fact, we're not competitors, we're co-heirs. We are children of God. God's called us to love one another and serve one another and care for one another. We're not foes, we're family. Right? That's what Christ has called us to. And so this rivalry will rise up and will break down unity because there is this thing called pride in all of our hearts. And this pride causes me to think about me all the time. And to think about what I want. And again, to see other people as competitors. This happens even at the high church, at the, at the church level in terms of the local expression of churches in a particular geography. I don't know how many of you guys got to come just a few weeks back, but in our city on April 17th, we had a prayer gathering uh, just up the road here. And we had multiple churches from this part of the city come into the same room and worship Jesus together and pray and cry out to Jesus together. It was awesome. In fact, when we do that again, don't miss it, okay? It was incredible. And here's why. Because one, I think Jesus smiles when he sees his church rally together. He loves to see his people come together in unity. But it's a reminder in that room, we are not competitors. We are working together for the same goal, the same purpose. And when the church is disunified and competing with one another, man, it is very difficult for us to accomplish that mission. When the world looks at a fragmented, divided church, they're like, what's up? I thought these Christians like, are supposed to be about God's love, right? And then they see uh, pastors not even willing to talk to one another and really see each other, again, as 
we're competing to see who can have the biggest church or the biggest whatever, biggest ministry. All goofy stuff, honestly. Silliness. But the beauty is, is that God can break down that selfish ambition, even in the heart of pastors. But also, you notice he says, not only rivalry, but conceit. Conceit. Maybe your uh, version or translation says, uh, vain glory. Vain glory. Now, what's funny about vain glory is that we're, it reveals we're, we're chasing after something that doesn't exist. Right? It's saying you're going after this glory that doesn't even exist. And, and again, we're driven by our own pride sometimes to want to have the spotlight or want to people to like us or what, want people's acceptance. And we have that in Christ. So to pursue glory outside of that is vain. Vain glory. And Paul has already talked about these other guys who are sharing the gospel out of rivalry and pride in, in chapter 1. But here's the key to unity. If we're going to overcome rivalry, if we're going to overcome vain conceit, here's, here's the key. Ready? Humility. Humility is the key. And that's easy to say, but hard to live, right? It's really, really easy to say, but it's very difficult to actually live out. That humility in relationships will allow us to live in unity together. To humble ourselves before God. John Stott, a preacher, an Anglican preacher, who I respect highly and has really helped me have a better grasp of the cross of Christ and and really worship Jesus more deeply as I've grown my understanding. He says this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Paul is trying to tell us, listen, that there is a different way to live in light of the gospel. It's not in rivalry or selfish ambition, but it's in humility. I hadn't planned on this, but I'm just going to tell you, um, originally planned to preach all the way through the end of 11, um, but I think it would be unfair to that passage to just mow through it because it's one of the most incredible passages of Scripture. But I do want to read it to us as we end today because the truth is, is that humility, true humility, is only seen in and, and discovered in Christ. It's only seen in and discovered in Christ. And I, I'll explain what I mean here in a second, but just let's read this together. Verse 5. He says this. He says, Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and then he had come as a man in his external form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus lays down his right to be on his throne in heaven and comes and takes on flesh, dwells among us, becomes a human being. That's as, humble, <laughs> that's as humbling as it gets. He leaves his position at the top of the pile, right? Supreme Lord. He, he comes and he becomes man. He incarnates. God made flesh. And then he not only becomes flesh, but he suffers on a cross. 
But notice what happens. Because he did what God asked him to do, the Father asked him to do, and the plans that they had made, God exalts him, right? And it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Well, we're going to pick up there next week. But here's the thing. My prayer this morning is that we would be a unified people, that we would understand how significant this is, that we would work together. We work together to help one another grow in the grace of the gospel, that we'd help each other grow in the gospel mission, to help every person in our city, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers know the message of Christ. And when we are disunified, it is very difficult to do that. But when we are unified, there is something that God does so significant, so powerful. If you're here as an unbeliever this morning, because you're, maybe you're just seeking, maybe somebody just invited you along. Um, one, I, I want to say that I'm really sorry you've seen a church that is so dysfunctional in the United States. Probably a lot of you have seen churches that are very disunified and broken and having conversations about stuff that really doesn't matter. My prayer is that you would see Christians living and walking in unity. If you're a Christ follower, don't live in isolation. Don't live in this rugged individualism that our culture celebrates. Are you with me? But, but press into community. Realize and recognize your need for other believers, other Christ followers. Be humble. Let your guard down. Stop walking independently of other people, other Christ followers. Experience the grace and the goodness that God has for you. Let's remember Christ's example, laying down his life, becoming a humble servant, even to the point of death, so that we could be made right. We could be set free. Let me pray for us.